0: it's significantly increased my resilience, especially going to college. It uh, it really made a huge difference, especially in the pre-med path. It's a very competitive path where it takes a lot of studying and hard work, et cetera. For me, sitting down and studying for long periods of time, that was nothing compared to what I had dealt with (laughs) as a child. If it's just asking me to just put in the work and study as hard as I can, you know, find resources that allows me to be able to do well in classes, I'd gladly do that over putting myself in a position where I could, you know, be at a situation that I was in similar to high school. So I definitely would say a resilience played the biggest role.
1: Welcome to episode 142 of the AFT Construction Podcast. And today we have an amazing guest, Festus Ohan, uh, who's joining us from Dallas. And Festus and I met at the In-N-Out Children's Tournament, uh in California, Southern California. And Festus is an incredible inspiration for anybody. This is somebody that he dives into his personal story of living in the foster care system. Uh his mother that uh had schizophrenia when he was super young and then his dad, uh, who suffered from bipolar and abandoned him when he was twelve, and then the journey, being twelve years old without his parents, going through the foster care system and how he's triumphed through that, you know, that personal motivation and uh understanding, you know, th- what's in front of him and the resources around him that are out there for him to make this journey from, you know, no parents to graduating college, to being selected to Northwestern and UCLA and Columbia and Cornell, these amazing medical schools. And now he's almost finished with residency, ready to enter the professional uh, field full-time. And just a true inspiration can't wait for, the, for you to listen to this conversation with Festus. So without further ado, let's get started. This past May, we had an amazing Contractor Coalition Summit. This was in Nashville with Nick Schiffer from Menace Builders and Morgan Molitor from Construction to Style out of Minnesota. And we are now up for our second round of the Contractor Coalition Summit that'll be in Huntington Beach from Sunday, November 6th through Wednesday, November 9th. Go to ContractorCoalitionSummit.com, sign up, register. We have some amazing partners that'll be there sponsoring the event. Amazing attendees that have already signed up. It's limited seating. We're only allowing 30 to attend. And again, this will be all things pricing, profitability, contracting, client expectations, scheduling, and of course, marketing and social media. Everything that we wish we knew in our business from the very beginning is all going to be wrapped up into just a couple of days. So we'll see you there in Hunting in the Beach in November. So I'm Brad Levitt here on the AFT Construction Podcast, and I'm super excited today. We have Festus Ohan with us. Welcome, Festus.
0: Uh, hey, it's a pleasure meeting everyone.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So Festus is a third year anesthesiology resident. Um, he's had an amazing journey, amazing career already at, at such a young age. And the reason I want to bring you on Festus is we met briefly. I mean, you only met me for a couple of minutes, but I think you had more of an impact on me uh, as I was sitting there in the crowd and you were sitting up on a panel there, you know, we were there for the in and out children's benefit, you know, the golf tournament there at Torrey Pines and you were the signature guest and you just, you, you made a huge impact. I think a lot of us in life, um, you know, we're dealt different hands, right? Everybody is to some extent. And it it's easy looking inside in, saying, well, anyone can just like work hard and get out of it. Right. And it's not true. Like there's a lot more to it than just focus or hard work and determination. Like there has to be opportunity. There has to be, you know, people that give us a chance. I look for me, not being too long-winded, Festus, because you're a signature guest. Like I want to give you time here. But even for me, young in my career, I had someone that believed in me that gave me that opportunity. And you need that, right? Because not everything is just you can't just bulldoze your way through life. Um, so how has in and out? How has that foundation
0: played a role in your life? Oh, it played a pivotal role, especially given the fact that there's a. So essentially, in college, I went to UC Riverside, and then there was a particular program that really helped support former foster youth uh, that emancipated out of the system called the Guardian Scholars Program. Um, essentially, what it does is provide resources, mentoring. Um, and just essentially referrals to like different mentors, etc. And that's kind of essentially how I got involved with in and out because in and out is actually a big sponsor of the Guardian Scholars Program. Um, and from there, uh, that's how I met uh, some of the people, such as like Howard, who uh, mm-hmm. really- Howard's amazing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and... Um, they made a huge difference, especially through their contributions towards the Guardian Scholars program and similar programs as well that helped support emancipated the foster youth well
1: well, well, before we dive into that, because I do want to dive into the relationship with Howard and the Guardian School, but before we do that, I think we have to preface this a little bit because you know for you to jump in the u uh, c riverside, it's not like this is just most kids, hey, I go to high school, go to college. like there is a whole background here that's very unique to your story, so. Why, I mean, foster care system, you know, which is a very complicated system. You know, there, there is value in it, but there's also difficulty and challenges, especially for, you know, the kids and families involved. What, if you don't mind me asking, Festus, why were you in the foster program? Like, give us a little background of, of your story.
0: Yeah, so uh, I grew up in um, LA, um, especially my um, younger childhood days. I was in the south, uh, worst part of LA, kind of south central area by like Crenshaw. Um, so, at the age of four, uh, my mom had uh, schizophrenia. Um, so, ultimately, she was putting in a kind of border care facility, and I was living with my father uh, till the, about the age of 12, um, in which he had abandoned my sisters and I. Um, of note, um, I later came to realize that he did have a bipolar disorder. So, you know, I think an element of that was due to mental illness that both affected um, both my mom and my father. um, That kind of essentially led us to the uh, foster care system. Um, That was kind of at the age of 12 and through during me being in the system I had uh, jumped from home to home about a total of like seven to eight homes um, by the time I was 18. Um, During that period of time I mean, it was definitely a a rough period of time. You know, I definitely felt like I had uh, a lack of a support system. Um, In addition to that, you know, there was just overall anger and frustration of just being put in that type of environment, uh, which led uh, for me to, you know, get into multiple fights during my middle school and high school years and um, not really necessarily knowing what I wanted to do in the future. so, how was that? I
1: mean, you, 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 you well, you talked about being in fights and stuff. I mean, where did, you know, where did that generate just maybe the difficulty? I mean, you kind of alluded to this being in seven or eight homes. I mean, like emotionally, mentally, I mean, now you're, you know, you're at a point in your life where, you know, you can look back and you can understand a little bit more. But at that time, being a kid, 12 years old, going seven, eight homes, I mean, it just walk us through just like mentally the impact or like the where it had on you emotionally, physically, and then how that led into, you know, just communication with other schoolmates?
0: Yeah, I think there was a couple of reasons why that had occurred. One is just, I truly felt like no one really cared about me and my uh, sisters or believed in us. Um, In addition to that, um, just jumping from home to home, it had, sometimes it had nothing to do with my sisters and I, they just essentially wanted, let's say, younger foster youth or, they ended up moving and they didn't want to bring us along with us, uh, bring me my sisters along with them, I should say. Um, things such as that, uh, and in addition to that, the fact that you know my mom and my dad weren't involved really just had me personally feel like I, no one really cared about me. Um, no one really cared about my sisters and I. Um, and just a lack of mentorship, that all played a role. And, and I'd probably say it. Uh, probably the most important thing was just the environment I was surrounded in. You know, the high schools slash middle schools I went to, a lot of them were not in the best of places. Um, oftentimes, sometimes having riots. Um, and when you kind of have all of those things kind of coming into one, like, you know, it plays a huge impact in, you know, how you react to things. So how many, how many sisters do you have? I currently have two sisters. Uh, my youngest one... Fortunately for her, she had gone to my grandma's um, until the age of 16. Um, My grandma was living in Nigeria at the time, um, until, Mm -hmm. and then she ultimately ended up coming back to the States at 16 and was in the system. And then my sister, that's one year younger than me, she was with me in the system. So
1: now when you were in the system, and you mentioned it's just a difficulty, as you're going through seven or eight homes, were you able to always be with your sister that was a year younger or did it, were there times where you
0: guys were both separated? Fortunately for us, we were able to stay together. Um, so due to that, I think there, there was a lack of choices as far as like what cities we wanted to go in, you know, wanted to live in, et cetera. But I think our number one priority was just staying together because, you know, there's so many times in which I've heard of situations, especially for um, young girls in the foster care system where they can be, you know, whether it's emotionally or sexually abused, et cetera. But luckily, because I had my sister in the same home with me, I felt like I can make sure that didn't happen. And fortunately for her, that did not occur. Wow, that's amazing. And so when,
1: you know, when you look back, what what is the reason, if you don't mind me asking, when you go seven, eight homes, why is that? Is it,
0: it,
1: what does it have to do by changing households so many times?
0: So, I mean, a couple, so there's a couple of different reasons. One was, like, let's say they could only really, they want, only wanted one uh, foster youth, and, you know, like I said, me and my sister came as a pair. Um, another one was um, they ended up just moving out of state. Um, another one was there's different foster care agencies. Um, so one ended up moving to another foster care agency, which, I don't really know the specifics in, regarding why we couldn't go along with them, but essentially we found out the day of um, that we were going to a different foster home. Um, when they decided to change foster care agencies, um, those particular foster parents didn't even have the gal to tell my, my sisters and I beforehand that we were going to be leaving. They just said, hey, we're going to be uh, hey pack-up, you know, we're going to change rooms around. and." the next day we found out we were leaving, so.
1: Wow. And so th- that was gonna be one of my questions is that when you're transitioning or, or moving homes, I mean, how quick is that transition? How much notice do you have? You know, th- you, you have school, you have homework, you have classes, like, and you mentioned cities. I mean, originally you said you grew up South Central, right, by Crenshaw, but you know, how proximity-wise, I mean, how often were you changing schools and now trying to meet new people? get your bearings and surroundings, you know, and, and somewhat of a comfort zone if that's even
0: possible? Uh, pretty often. I will say there was um, two or three foster homes in which I was there for a longer period of time, like two, three years. Some other ones were kind of there for a couple of weeks or a month. And like, as a transition, I, one thing I will say is fortunately in, in high school, I'd say um, I was able to only, switch, change uh, high schools three times. One of them was just for a two week period while the other times were um, being in the high school for about two years.
1: But, but you mentioned that like casually, like only three times. I mean, most kids that have to change like one time, I mean, it could be catastrophic in some circumstances. Right. And so, you know, looking back now, like at this point, and we're not going to skip the past. I want to come back to that, but just you know now, do you feel that that's given you more of an advantage as you're in you know residency uh that hey, I've been through this, I've been through hard times, you know how has that bridge just your 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 mental strength now dealing with um, circumstances outside of your control you know challenges that come along the way?
0: Oh, yeah, I would definitely say it's significantly increased my resilience, especially going to college it uh, it really made a huge difference especially in the pre-med path it's a very competitive path where it takes a lot of studying and hard work etc for me sitting down and studying for long periods of times that was nothing compared to what I had dealt dealt with <laughs> as a child you know so like if it's just asking me to just put in the work and study as hard as I can you know find resources that allows me to be able to do well in classes that's I'd gladly do that over putting myself in a position where I could be at a situation that I was in similar to high school. So I definitely would say a resilience played the biggest role.
1: And, and I know you mentioned this at the foundation, uh, when you're up on the panel, you had talked about that the fighting had led to almost expulsion, right? You know, was there, you, how, how severe was that? Was there a turning point where it kind of clicked saying, hey, you know, I, there has to be some, you know, I'm at the split in the road here, you know, which way do I go?
0: Yeah, definitely. So oftentimes, um, about once every couple months, there would be like a social worker that comes to see us. Um, And like, one thing I will say about myself is, even in high school, without having to try too hard, I would still do relatively okay in school. Um, And a lot of teachers had said, hey, like, you're a very bright kid. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, Um, they would just say, sometimes you have a hard head, um, which was a fair (laughs) assessment. (laughs) Um, and I realized like, I ultimately knew that to put myself in a better position, like I wanted to go to a four-year college. Um, and even though like, you know, I would fight, I, I would do really well. And I knew if I had like a expulsion contract, you know, on my record that can really, really play a, a significant role in, you know whether or not I get accepted to college or especially particularly a four-year college. Um, so ultimately, I try to like keep my eyes on the prize and, I, and just try to avoid that at all costs. And that really helped.
1: So let me ask you this, Festus, and this is why it's interesting. Your story, like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons it resonates with me personally, right? Being a father and having kids. And, you know, I have five daughters. And I, I know you don't know this. And you mentioned that, you know, just how, your sister, like girls that go through the foster system, you know the abuse side of thing that's real um but but relating to business, you know the life of an entrepreneur is extremely difficult like it there there's highs and lows, it's not for everybody, you're managing constant chaos, you're dealing with employees in some cases or clients, and you know it it's one of those things that we always say that as an entrepreneur as a business owner, it's like every five minutes. It changes you could be really high and then super low, right, and it just it, it's understanding well how mentally do I bridge that gap? how do I overcome that? how do I have this positive and and for you, I look at this, and I know that you have future plans, not just med school but also you know writing a book and and public speaking and these things where you are an entrepreneur you've done that, and so um and this' is where I get to is that you what, what led to that path when you think about college like it's it's really easy to say, okay, I go to UC riverside but I'm I'm still trying to understand, okay, I'm switching seven eight homes. You know, I'm with my sister, my, my mom had schizophrenia, my dad, you know, is doing bipolar. So I'm dealing with all this like burden in my life or triumph, you know, and or not triumph, but like just tribulation, I should say. And then here you are. What what gets you on the path to say, I'm going to college, and then even further to know that medical school medical school is right for me, I want to go pre med. Um,
0: for me personally I always, even though <laughs> I did have a, you know, hard head and, you know, I had to work on um, <laughs> avoiding fights, etc. at certain points of my, in my childhood, I always actually really enjoyed the sciences. Um, that's something I was always generally curious about. Um, as far as going into medicine, I would oftentimes, like, read books, something. One of the books in particular was called Gift in Hands. Uh, it was a book by uh, Ben Carson. Um, in which he was someone who had um, more humble uh, upbringings and he ultimately ended up becoming a top neurosurgeon. Um, And kind of seeing, reading that book and seeing that movie kind of uh, gave me further inspiration um, and allowed me to believe that I could do this. However, once again, like once I told, uh, whether it's foster youth or... um, uh, other adults that were surrounding me at the time of my aspirations of becoming a doctor in my high school period. Uh, it was met with uh, criticism and skepticism. And um, So was,
1: why is that? So, so when you say met with criticism and skepticism, like who was giving you that negative feedback?
0: Uh, so at least two of my foster parents and uh, one of my teachers in particular. Um, like I said, at the time, like as far as GPA goes, um, coming out of high school, I, you know, I had like a, I think a lot of 3.2, which is, you know, was enough to get me to a four year. But oftentimes, a lot of uh, physicians, um, especially now that I'm a resident, I can see a lot of my uh, current colleagues, they were former valedictorians, uh top students in their high school. So um, there was teachers that said, hey, like, you know, based on how your performance is, um, you're likely not going to make it. Even foster youth who are supposed, or I shouldn't say foster youth, but foster parents who are supposed to try to encourage you um, noted that I should have more uh, realistic aspirations. Um, given the fact that at that time, it's, the percentage is slightly increased, but at the time it was only like 1% of foster youth even graduate college, let alone make it to grad school. I think now it's about 2 to 3%. So when, you,
1: when you're hearing this, you know, okay, Festus, you need to have realistic expectations or aspirations, right? You know, like mentally walk me through just like that barrier saying, well, hold on. Like, I know I'm hard headed, but I'm a really smart guy. I love the sciences. Like, what, what gives you the confidence to say, I'm going to be different than the 1% that come out of the foster care system, right? My, my, my goal and my destination, if you will, is different.
0: I think this is one of those situations where I can be glad I was hardheaded. Oftentimes, um, in this case, (laughs) not listening and not taking no for an answer actually really helped me. Um, Oftentimes, I would (laughs) look at the skepticism as a challenge. However, I will say in high school, because I would have heard it so many times, I was not fully confident that I could do it. However, I wouldn't try to deviate from that path just due to someone saying I couldn't. Um, however, once I got myself in a different environment, such as college, where I had all these uh, mentors and, you know, resources, that w- was a different ball game, And I was able to utilize this resilience that I built since I was in high school um, and middle school to really single-handedly focus on that path.
1: Well, you're good on the skateboard, because I know that's from the video. So when did you, you know, where did that come into play?
0: So it's funny, because actually... Uh, it <laughs> In freshman year, I was riding around in a scooter at first, but a lot of my friends... UC Riverside? You mean at
1: UC Riverside?
0: Yeah, exactly. But a lot of my friends um, noted that, hey, you probably want to upgrade to a skateboard because it would look slightly more cool. Um, So I saved up a little bit of money and and ended up getting a longboard.
1: That's amazing. And so how's the longboard uh, skill now, you know, now that you're in med school?
0: So essentially, during my med school period, I actually almost tripped over my longboard and I got ran over by a truck. So um, right now, I'm currently (laughs) retired from it. (laughs) Longboardless? Exactly. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
1: So so walk me through, you know, in high school now. Okay, so you're getting through high school. You know, why UC Riverside? How did that opportunity come into play? And when you were accepted or, or enrolled in UC Riverside, Was pre-med the goal from enrollment?
0: Yeah, so essentially, um, when I first went into UC Riverside, I had, I told myself I was going to major in the sciences, which I did. However, I, because I didn't truly feel fully confident at that time, I was like, okay, if not medicine, maybe I can go into like, you know, nursing or something related to the sciences, because I actually was very intrigued by um, that particular field. Riverside in particular, because at that time I was in, so in high school, I was actually moved to Victorville and that was mm-hmm. maybe about like 40 to 50 miles, I'd say, or so. In the middle of nowhere. Uh,
1: Not exactly. Nowhere, <laughs> <out there. laughs> yeah.
0: No, I completely agree. Um, so yeah. in that vicinity, um, as far as the uh, UCs go, UC Riverside was the closest and um, they actually had a, a good financial package, especially that's something for me was a very important um, thing that I was looking at. Um, and then as I like toured the campus, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I had heard about the Guardian Scholars Program in um, my senior year of high school. And one of the um, founders of the UCR Guardian Scholars Program had you know contacted me and uh, we ended up meeting and I just had a great time. Um, and that's kind of where I personally felt it was, would be my home for the next four years.
1: So when you say you heard about the Guardian Scholars, I mean, you you mentioned you heard about that in high school before you got to UC Riverside?
0: Yes, exactly. They actually had, as I applied to different colleges, um, someone in the Guardian Scholars program had reached out. And in June of my senior year of high school, they had like a Guardian Scholars event in which they were able to have someone like pick me up from my foster home and, and take me to it. And I really got along with everyone, but personally felt like that was the program for me.
1: So what do you, you, know, for those that are listening, that may not know what the guardian program is, you know, walk us through not just the impact it on you and, you know, helping you get through college, but also, you know, from the guardian side, who are they, what do they do? And how do they reach out, you know, to, to kids all throughout Southern California and everywhere. I know they're in
0: Houston or Dallas now, right? I mean, I think they've expanded. So, yeah. So essentially the guardian scholars program, um, is a program for emancipated foster youth, meaning foster youth that had uh, essentially aged out of the foster care system that are attending uh, various colleges. Um, and particular in California, I believe at the time when I had started, there might've been like 10 to 12 different guardian scholars programs in different campuses I've known. I know that it has since expanded dramatically. Um, what it does, it helps different guardian scholars have different things that they provide for their college students. Um, I know they usually prov- provide a certain amount of like financial, um, like scholarships, whether it's two or 3000 a year um, mentorship, um, where they can kind of direct you towards certain resources, uh, whether it's getting to getting books or to finding tutoring, et cetera. Um, oftentimes, with a lot of emancipated foster youth during the holidays such as like Christmas or Thanksgiving there's nowhere where we can kind of celebrate that so um, there's usually someone in the Gardner Scholars program that'll kind of help host uh, a Christmas party or Thanksgiving party where you know people in different uh, people can like donate certain things like whether it's let's say a $20 gift card to the movies etc where they would kind of allow us to kind of get that as a present and it kind of essentially just makes us feel special oftentimes when it comes to holidays there's really nothing that we're getting and we're kind of just not celebrating it but at least um the garden scholars program kind of made us feel like there was a sense of uh familiarity family belonging um so i'd say that's kind of like the gist of it
1: well well it's important i mean you mentioned just a couple things there is it's one thing to go to college and anyone that's been to college or at least uh, familiar with it, it's very expensive, right? It's not just the tuition, but you have the books, you have room and board, you know, food, just the basics, but also as you mentioned, there's travel, right? There's commute to campus, there's um, clothing. And then, as you said, you know, holidays, you know, when there's holidays or breaks, some kids are probably going home to family or whatever, but then, you know, where are you at? Where do you fit in? And so the that, you know, agency essentially is working, you know, birthdays, holidays. And so you have someone that's like a, a resource that if you're, once you're emancipated from the foster system, you have, you know, just another network or family, if you will.
0: Exactly. Uh, I completely agree. Um, in addition to that, I think there's oftentimes like for me when I was um, studying for like my MCAT, which is a really big test to get into medical school, um, oftentimes, most people can afford like taking MCAT classes um, to really prepare for that. So the Guardian Scholars Program can even help with things like that for those aiming for even higher uh, goals, such as like grad school, or professional school, and makes a world of a difference. So walk us through.
1: I mean, looking back now, if 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 you're looking at your younger self, Festus, what advice would you give? I mean, especially now you see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it. You know, looking at your younger self. What, what advice would you give? I always ask this to entrepreneurs and business owners that if I would start my business today, what would I do different? What would I focus on? I mean, I, I know a lot of this as well. You kind of, I would imagine, look back at these experiences and say, well, they kind of helped mold and shape me to where I am today. But maybe some advice would be a little bit, make that process a little bit easier, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. I would say, like, try to find as many resources as you can, to, whether it's for your studies or whatever your aspirations are. Try to find mentors Um, in the path that you're essentially exploring to really help you and find your ways. I think one thing that I noticed through my time kind of in the pre-medical path is mentorship is huge. Um, I can't stress that enough, especially for those in the foster care system, because that's something that, you know, we tend to be severely lacking in. Um, And just, you know, staying confident, staying resilient, you know, there's going to be many ups and downs um, on the path that you're going to. But as long as you, you stay resilient and keep trying, um, you're gonna eventually get through that path.
1: And now, so walk us through, why, why anesthesiology? You, know, you mentioned that you're in your third year of your residency, You've got about one year left, which um, I'm sure you're pretty excited about. So why, so why did you choose that path?
0: Uh, for me personally, I, there was a couple of things I really enjoyed. Pharmacology and physiology, which it's very stressed upon in anesthesiology. In addition to that, I really enjoyed uh, being in the OR. But I'm okay with being kind of like the hero in the background, um, essentially. Oftentimes, when uh, patients are undergoing surgery, they view their surgeons as the person that's gonna uh, is that's their doctor. Um, but oftentimes, the anesthesiologists are the ones keeping the patient alive, making sure everything's okay, while the surgeon can just focus on the surgery surgery at hand. Um, and in addition to that, I really enjoyed procedures. You know, Not only do we intubate patients, which are you know essentially putting a tube um, during, uh, through a patient's mouth and breathing for them, mm-hmm. we also get to put in different types of lines, such as like IVs or something called an arterial line to closely monitor the blood pressure. And oftentimes, we're doing something called regional blocks that really help uh, alleviate patients' pain. Um, And we do epidurals, et cetera. So there's, I just really enjoy everything that um, is associated with the field.
1: So, so walk me through this, walk me through, you know, just the educational side that now you're going to be educating myself and our audience. You know, when you're doing, uh, when you're numbing somebody, you're helping them with pain tolerance, you know, and you're doing a regional block. The complication behind that, understanding not just the, uh, you you know, the medicine that you're putting in, but also the human Body, right? How it's functioning and how our organs are working. And so, how are you working? You know, how do you manage the the regional blocks to make sure that you're not numbing the whole body, right? It's just certain areas.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, um, to give an example, um, during our obstetric anesthesia rotations, uh, we often do epidurals for uh, patients in labor. So, just being able to help make sure uh, a prospective mother is feeling less pain. It's, it's huge. Um, what we do is we, so there's certain levels in which we numb to make sure that the patient essentially is not feeling pain from labor, but at the same time, um, the patient's not, it's hard to Totally explain.
1: numb, where they have like no feel of any of their limbs or body, right?
0: Exactly. Um, so it's kind of like a fine balance between them. So we're always kind of making sure we're at the appropriate level and uh, the appropriate area in the back. Um, yeah.
1: And, and you know, we're going through the epidural side. I know just having, not me personally, but my spouse having kids, right? I mean, there is, it, it. it's not just a very easy procedure, right? There's risk involved anytime you're on the spine or the back in the epidural. So, you know, training wise, you know, how important, is that aspect of it for you to really understand, you know, just the, uh, the idiosyncrasies, right? They go into, like, injecting somebody and, and having an epidural in their back.
0: Exactly. It's very important just due to the fact that if you go too far, you can give too much medication and inject it to certain regions of the spinal cord, which can ultimately significantly drop uh, the patient's blood pressures. Uh, there's a risk of having any type of nerve damage if you don't know what you're doing. Um, however, if you do it the right way, it plays a huge role in positively impacting uh, patients' pain um, when they're in labor. So you always have to like, really know the anatomy and just be very careful um, to make a positive impact in pregnant patients.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers. Because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their their company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So, for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So, if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are Build-A-Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests that we've brought on the podcast are also Build-A-Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, As complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple of features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers and through Build Trend this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Builder Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops, you know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast The building code. To learn more, head to buildertrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Builder Trend account. That's 60 days to make sure you love this product with no pressure, and I know you will. So it's interesting. You know, for me, I'm in the construction business. You know, I, I have a construction company, and you know, every day that I'm at work, it's really just managing risk. It's understanding um, risk of you know pricing and contracts and logistics and supply chain. But even more importantly, you know, we have like OSHA that re- look, overlooks, you know, job site safety because at the end of the day, there's projects that we do that are very complex. And, you know, the safety of my team, of our trade partners and suppliers, anyone that's involved, right, that's that's a huge part of it. And, and it can be really difficult at times, you know, and overwhelming. And it's no different, right? Speaking of bedside manner, I know that you know, most doctors, you know, bedside manner is really important because having good bedside manner when people like their doctor, not only is it more pleasurable experience, but, you know, the relationship tends to be a lot stronger. And in the construction world, some of us don't have great bedside manner. We're not great communicators. And so that can create expectations that, you know, are far off. Speak to that side, the bedside manner, the, the, the relationship you have with your patients, with other doctors, other nurses, you know, how important is that
0: aspect of your profession? Oh, in our field, I believe it's extremely important. Um, oftentimes, we're seeing patients at some sometimes the lowest points in their life. Um, we're seeing patients when they're probably the most anxious that they've ever been. Um, there's various surgeries. Some are very, like, s- simple elective surgeries, just getting, like, getting your gallbladder removed. And some are huge surgeries, such as, like, lung and liver transplant, where there's, you know, a way bigger risk of, you know, Significantly bad core morbidities, and and what our job is to really make sure not only do we kind of like give them positive affirmation and letting them know that we're going to do everything we can to get them through the case, and also just to ease their anxiety about the case, and and making sure they know that they're in good hands. Um, So I think it's extremely important. Oftentimes, if a patient doesn't have a good relationship with uh, their physician, they tend to be more skeptical of multiple aspects of medicine whether whether it's surgery or whether it's um the physician's ability to do the job correctly um versus when they have a great relationship, they truly believe that they're in good hands, and oftentimes when you believe that something's gonna turn out well, uh increase the chances of that actually happening.
1: Well, you're a great communicator, and you have like this this amazing small pheasant, so I'm sure. You know, most cases that's going to alleviate some of the stress or anxiety that the patient may have. How do you deal? I'm sure it's not always that easy, right? How do you deal with the tough clients, the tough patients that maybe their expectations are unrealistic or um, maybe mentally are having a hard time? Because there's look, the reality is a lot of us, you know, getting needles, getting shots, being in a doctor's office, there's anxiety, even going to a dentist's office in some cases. So, you know, how has that been, you know, just for you trying to manage, you know, the tough client that, it comes into play.
0: I always try to just kind of put myself in the patient's uh, perspective. Oftentimes, I always have to just remember they're going through a tough time, and it's very important to just be patient and also take your time to explain things uh, with a patient um, and ease any type of concerns that they may have. Um, in addition to that, always try to, you know, do what you can to uplift the patient and uh, ease their concerns, whether it's taking time to explaining what's, what we are going to do multiple times or taking time to kind of um, just ask what's wrong. You know, there may be other factors that are in play. Maybe a patient may have had a really bad experience with anesthesia in the past or a relative with a really bad experience that's making them hesitant on um, a certain thing that we're going to do. If that's the case, you know, we want to ask, you know, why are you feeling that way? And um, after we know the reason why we can help, you know, alleviate whatever concern that they may have. So you mentioned a couple of things, right?
1: You're speaking about empathy and is, which is really important in explaining or setting expectations. And when, when I'm speaking with contractors, and I've even looked at my own, essentially, you know, my my resume per se, you know, projects that we've done, clients where relationships probably weren't as good as they could have been. And the breakdown is always in, you know, setting clear expectations, right, defining kind of what the process will be, the time constraint, you know, cost in some cases, you know, these things that we're trying to manage. And so you know, the more we can explain, the more we can set proper expectations, it just creates um, more comfort for the client, right? And the em- empathy is really important. You know, the medical field is not much different, right? I mean, you have clients coming yeah. in, they're asking your advice, that's this and other doctors. And if you can give them a reasonable, um, you know, layout of the land, if you lay a land, right, of here's the expectation, here's the time frame. you know, whether it be surgery or, you know, as you're working them back to the rehabilitation, whatever it is, um, you know, that would go a lot further than them just being completely in the dark.
0: Completely agree. And luckily, I think with anesthesia, uh, throughout the past couple of decades, anesthesia has become uh, more and more safe due to just the advancement in technology. So oftentimes when a patient has a particular concern, you know, I can let them know that it's, for most cases, it's likely less than a 1% chance that something's going to go wrong. And that we're going to do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen.
1: You know? So how has that changed? When you talk about advancements of technology, you know, for anesthesia, you know, what are some of the things that have changed or, or maybe systems or processes that have changed even, you know, your experience through residency?
0: Uh, so as far as during my residency period, not too much just because um, <laughs> as I've only been here for three years. But um, yeah, <laughs> in the past couple of decades, like the anesthesia machines and how complicated they are has uh, significantly helped with, you know, bad uh, core morbidities during um, the operation. Now, there's certain alarms that will trigger if, let's say, the patient's sat- saturation or oxygen levels are going down, or um, if there's, let's say, the, an- the patient's, the anesthesia machine has an issue, like, there's alarms that will kind of alert us to, like, know what's going on. So, it prevents any kind of essentially things that we may miss during the middle of the case. Um, And in addition to that, like on top of that, and us just being attentive um, towards the patient and the anesthesia machine throughout the case uh, significantly decreases any risk such as that happening.
1: And so what is it like for you as an anesthesiologist, for those that aren't in the medical field or not there in the hospital day to day? What is a normal day look like for you in residency and and as an
0: anesthesiologist? Yeah, so essentially, like usually in the hospital I'm in, the first case will start at around 7 a.m. So what I'll do is at 6 a.m. come into the hospital, talk to the first patient of the day, um, essentially ask questions about their past medical history, and then kind of explain um, what we were going to do as far as the, the anesthesia. Um, and then afterwards have them sign the consent. And then after I do that, I'll go to the OR, set that up, um, and then as I'm setting up everything in the OR, the surgeons, et cetera, um, they're coming in to talk to the patient as well. And then once kind of the surgeons are done talking to the patient and it hits the 7 a.m. period, um, we'll, I'll come by and um, essentially bring the patient to the OR. Um, As we do that, um, it really depends on the case. um, But for the most part, if it's like a bigger general anesthesia case, um, I'll put put the patient to sleep and then for most of the cases, what we'll do is we'll put a tube down the patient's throat to breathe for them during the duration of the procedure. Um, In addition to that, depending upon what the procedure is, we can do other things as well, such as inserting another IV or um, inserting another arterial line, et cetera. Um, So it really depends on what exactly um, what the case is going to be. But Um, that's kind of how that goes and then in the end of the case we'll slowly wake the patient up and then we'll take out the tube and they'll have have them breathing on their own Um, and then we'll kind of go on to the next case and kind of just repeat that cycle for the most part but um, it really depends at least for in my residency program each month we do different rotations so some rotations that's kind of how my day looks like other rotations like let's say As previously noted, if I'm in the uh, OB anesthesia rotation, in that period of time, I'm kind of just going around from room to room and uh, essentially doing an epidural when patients are getting ready to um, have their baby. Um, So it, it really depends on what we're doing that day or that month, I should say.
1: So with the rotations, I mean, the value is, is, and and I'll look at this like GE. So for example, GE, General Electric, right? Which most of us know, they have a few different divisions. So I have, I've had peers that have done, you know, similar to you taking the MCAT, they take in the GMAT, you get into business school and you're going to go work for maybe in the finance, uh, division of GE. And what they do is, um, especially on the corporate finance side, they have a very extensive training system. So for like two years, you're going to be at four different locations. Sometimes not even just in the US, right? You may be remote in other parts of the world, but that you're in four different segments of GE. That way each employee, they're going through this very extensive two-year training, but now you've been through rotation, if you will, through these four segments of operation, and you know what resonates with you, what excites you, what you're good at, where your talent is. And so then the, you know, the new hire can say, okay, here we go. I'm gonna go down this field. You know, this is where I'm gonna specialize with GE and go this direction. And I think most businesses and and even us, this has taken us some time to figure out, okay, when we hire an employee, you're bringing them in, I expect them to know what to do. You kick them off the end of the pier and hopefully they don't drown. Right. Like, that's never a good process, you know, for new hire that we have to have processes and systems to bring them in, be trained so that they understand the expectations and they understand their role. For you, Festus is really it is very similar for the rotation that you're getting these different experiences throughout the hospital so that you now know this is what i want to do this where i want to specialize and really this is where i see myself fitting for the rest of my career
0: oh yes exactly um it's very similar to what you had previously stated um while we are doing these different rotations every month we're also being um, overseen by an attending anesthesiologist someone who's completed their residency program um, who's much more experienced than us so if we have any questions or concern concerns during that period of time There's always someone that's we can ask and um, get guidance from. Um, In addition to that, you can kind of determine what you want to do um, based on the rotations that we have. So uh, most most anesthesiology residents they'll decide to be a general anesthesiologist, which is kind of like a jack of all trades. We do everything essentially, but others can decide to uh, do a fellowship and further specialize essentially, whether it's doing cardiac anesthesiology, where you're mostly focused on, you know, big heart cases uh, where the patients tend to be sicker, or do OB anesthesiology, where you're focused on essentially doing a lot of epidurals, C-sections, etc. Um, so it allows us to kind of see our personal interests and where we want to, um, pers- what we want to pursue in the future. For me personally, I decided that um, based on all the rotations I've done, I kind of want to be a kind of a jack of all trades. So I'll be a general anesthesiologist. And
1: I was just going to ask you, like that was giving me my next question is where, you know, where do you see yourself, you know, career-wise general anesthesiology and, you know, you're in Dallas right now, right? If I'm not mistaken, is that? Yeah. And so being from Southern California, living in Dallas now, where is, you know, where do you hope to end up? Do you plan on staying in Dallas or, you know, what's the, the next venture once you finish residency?
0: That's the, that's the question of the year right now. Uh, (laughs) It's interesting because like now that we're in our third year of residency, now we're starting to get. um, So since I'm in the back end of my third year of residency and it's a total of four years, starting to get emails from, you know, a lot of places that are recruiting uh, for the class of 2023, which is my class. Um, I haven't made a decision yet. Um, I'm open to staying in Dallas. I'm also considering um, going back to Southern California or Maybe checking out Phoenix area as well, just because. Let's go. That's like, where I'm at. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> one thing about um, me moving to Dallas is um, I realized the cost of living in LA is actually a lot. So, um, yeah, going to oh, Phoenix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so being in Phoenix would allow me to be close enough to LA, but I wouldn't. The cost of living is not as um, significant.
1: So it's funny because I so I grew up in San Diego, uh, Festa, So born, and raised in San Diego, Southern California, and then went to college. And then I moved to Phoenix in 2005. So I've been here for 17 years, and very similar mindset, right? I love Southern California, but cost of living, you know, wasn't realistic. You know, being here in Phoenix, and I will say it's a short drive, so it's a good place to be. And uh, we 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 would be happy to recruit you any day out here to the Phoenix <laughs> area. So.
0: Crossing fingers, hopefully, hopefully.
1: (laughs) So how does that work, you know, for the recruitment side, right? I mean, it's very similar to, you know, for me, when I finished college, you know, you're fielding different offers, companies vetting them, you know, and one thing that was always counseled to me being very young was, hey, Brad, chase experience, not money. You know, money's really important. And I know for you, it's not like medical school's cheap. So you have to look at that. But part of it too is, you know, the opportunity, the opportunity for growth, mentorship, what you're gonna, you know, it's a practice, right? You're gonna continue to practice that general anesthesiology. What What are you looking for, and you know, how competitive is the medical field right now as they're looking to um, to bring you bring you in Festus, You know, as they're on the recruiting trail. So,
0: yeah. So it's actually very interesting. Um, once you we're actually done with residency, it kind of becomes a reverse, like right. So basically, in medical school and residency you're doing what you can to try to impress um, your future employers or medical schools, like what you're doing, what you can to impress like residency programs or medical schools. So you're kind of very worried about like the whole recruitment process versus like when you're done with residency due to the fact that um, there's a lack of physicians in general, they're actually doing what they can to recruit you. So it kind of becomes the opposite. so right now, usually it's just us sending our s- curriculum vitae, um, and um, what they do is they kind of will interview us. But it's very, it's the the interview is kind of more so, you know, maybe taking you out to dinner, uh, showing you the hospital, um, telling you the benefits of uh, the particular job that they're offering, and then for the most part, if you don't have any like you know red flags, whether it's being very, like, unsocial, et cetera, um, they usually will try to, like, give you an offer and try to recruit you. Um, so for me in particular, I'm probably going to wait until, the, till like, the fall to really start interviewing just because oftentimes when a job, like, will send you an offer, they'll usually um, say, hey, can you kind of let us know in about two to three weeks um, if you're going to accept or not? Um, so because of that, you kind of want to just... Stack a whole bunch of um, interviews at a one particular time period, so you can kind of make a decision there,
1: especially as it gets closer, right, to completion when you know you're going to be making that transition and move exactly so So here's what's interesting, and I didn't get to ask you this yet is that um, th- this is really important for anyone listening. you know we We spoke earlier in the conversation about just the foster care and and really what you've done Festus with you know what was in front of you with the guardians. But this is really cool. And this is what I think is one of the most amazing parts of your story is that you go to UC Riverside, you're ready to go to med school, speak to the, the, the offers. And I know, as you mentioned right now, it's you, you had to put together the resume, you're applying, you're trying to create your resume to be accepted in the med school. Now, as you are graduating residency, you know, people are recruiting you. But at that time, putting together that resume, what are some of the med schools that actually accepted you? And how did you make that final decision?
0: Yeah, so essentially, I got accepted to Columbia, Cornell, um, UCLA, uh, Northwestern. Um, I think it was like a total of like nine or ten different med schools. Um, I personally had, so I, so
1: real quick. So you had nine or ten med schools, and you're you're saying these names. And for any of us that you know, if if you're familiar with the academia world, right, from UCLA to Cornell, Northwestern uh columbia right i mean these are phenomenal i mean northwestern right and ucla these are not easy schools to be accepted to you know so how did you create this amazing resume you know just in it it just fascinating you go from you know the foster care system to you know working with the guardians there at uc riverside and bam now here you are being a you know what does that feel like when you get that accept or you know that offer letter from ucla or northwestern
0: I was just overall truly grateful. I think just kind of like looking past at everything that like I had to, um, all the trials and tribulations I had to overcome in high school and just going from that to, you know, working as hard as I can in college, it just felt like a breath of fresh air overall. And I was just overall truly grateful and excited for the next step in that journey.
1: So how did you make the decision? Which one did you go to and how did you, I mean, having nine med schools that accept you, You know, how do you pick just one?
0: Oh, so I ended up choosing UCLA uh, due to a big fact. A big factor was uh, they offered a full ride scholarship. uh, (laughs) That's that's a good offer. Exactly. That that definitely tends to to slide the scale a little bit, right? (laughs) Exactly. And at the time, it was in Southern California. um, Right. And it had, like, you know, it was a great program with a lot of uh, resources that were available to really helped me in my path of becoming a physician. So, yeah. <laughs> like UCLA, it's a beautiful campus. and It's a great location too. Oh, it was amazing. Um, a lot of the research opportunities that it provided for me, a lot of the great professors and teachers um, that were associated with the school um, played a huge role in my growth as a, as a, as a physician, to be honest. So um, I had an amazing experience at UCLA and just in general being in the Southern California area was great. (laughs) At that time I didn't have to worry about the cost of living as a student. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, It's kind of tough to go back to that. If you're living just outside of Beverly Hills at UCLA, you know, with free cost of living, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty uh, premier setup you had there Festus (laughs) though. Exactly. (laughs) As a kid, it's funny because so when I was, um, So in San Diego, you know, we did a field trip, like as you do, you know, especially in high school, we went up to UCLA for the day and got to tour the campus, you know, because, you know, they're trying to get all the kids, you know, to see where they want to go for UC schools there in California. And, and, you know, fast forward uh, when in between college and I didn't go to UCLA myself, but in between college, I was working doing um, like low voltage and fiber optics and fire alarm. And it was pretty neat, I was based in San Diego, but we went up to UC Riverside. We did some expansions up there. So I'm familiar with the UC Riverside campus. So never got to go to UCLA. I've seen the campus. So I mean, you know, living vicariously through Euphases, I mean, those are some <laughs> great schools, great opportunities, which really shows why you are where who you are and where you are now. I mean, those those are very challenging schools. So again, and just another feather to the cap, right, of of
0: your journey to where you are today. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I I'm just grateful to to have all the opportunities that I've had so far. So, <laughs> well, so PCR. what's next? So
1: what's that? What, yeah. So I mean, upcoming and exciting. Like, what's um? I and mean, maybe before we get to that, Festus, I want to ask you. So, so what do you do for fun? I mean, you know, academics and med school. I mean, that can take a toll. So, what do you do for your outlet outside of that?
0: Oh yeah. So sometimes I'll play basketball in the gym, or I've been trying to work out a little bit more, just because you know. Sometimes just being in the hospital for all those hours, you know, and (laughs) eating out all the time can really like take a toll (laughs) on your health. So I can't, I can't like advise uh, patients to, you know, live a healthy lifestyle and not do so myself. So I've just been (laughs) exercising as much as I can when I, while I have the chance to.
1: (laughs) So since your skateboard was destroyed, what's the exercise routine look like now? Outside so of basketball. Because I love basketball myself. I'm a big basketball fan. I still play. I love it. But what do you do outside of basketball and your, your skateboard that is now no longer?
0: <laughs> so sometimes I'll like run in the treadmill. Um, sometimes I'll just uh do a little bit of cardio by going in the pool, like during this season, <laughs> um, and overall just try to bench press, leg press, all the good stuff to try to keep my muscles intact. I'm just,
1: Yeah, you have to. I mean, it's. I'm telling you, I'm a little bit older now, so you have to work a lot harder. You know, I'm I'm early 40s, and you find yourself it's a lot harder than when I was in my 20s, right? (laughs) Which is fun, but so and then upcoming and excited. I mean, you mentioned this a little bit. Residency's going to be done. Sisters, now where are your sisters living now? Are they nearby? What's What's their plan?
0: So currently, my sisters, um, they moved to Dallas maybe about a year or so after I moved here. One of them's. working um, in Amazon. Um, She's deciding if she wants to do a master's in public health afterwards. Uh, She hasn't made that decision yet. And the other one's selling uh, health insurance. Um, We're working by selling health insurance to people. And, you know, both of them are doing well. They both graduated college. One also graduated from UC Riverside, while the other one graduated from UC Davis. So I'm really like amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. Another great school, UC Davis. Another great school. So what... So what's going to
1: happen then if you end up bolting and leaving to Phoenix? You know, what's are they gonna are they gonna follow you? or Are they gonna stay home
0: and you know stay back in Dallas? That's a great question. Um, I think both of them are up for moving wherever. Um, I think if one of them stays in Dallas, the other one will too because they're pretty close with each other. But if yeah. one of them decides to move to Phoenix, if, then the other one will probably end up doing the same. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So for those listening, I mean, Festus, I just, I just want to thank you. I mean, I think your story is amazing. There was, uh, I know you were on the news there, and and we watched the video there at the In and Out um, fundraiser, and you know we're gonna have that in the show links here as well, so they can see you cruising on your skateboard through Riverside and just the backstory, which is pretty neat. But um, what can our listeners find, you know, to follow along that journey, and especially in the future, is you know, from the author, public speaking, you know, as, as that begins to uh, take hold at some point?
0: Yeah. So essentially, um, you guys can find me via my Facebook. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm one of the only Festus Ohans. It's, <laughs> <laughs> to spell my name is F-E-S-T-U-S, last name O-H-A-N. Um, at some point in the next following months, I'll, I'm going to try to make another Instagram that's kind of like more of a public account
1: um, right. where I yeah. can
0: uh, slowly kind of build that following, especially because I do ultimately want to write a book. Um, and as, as I finish residency, I definitely want to pursue uh, more public speaking events as well.
1: So as we close here, advice, what advice would you give to anybody that, uh, not that you dealt with this, but you know, whether it be mental health or challenges they're dealing with in their life or uh, un- unfortunate circumstances, maybe they're uh, at a point in their career where they're not where they want to be. I mean, advice-wise, what do you have for them?
0: Uh, one thing I would say is, one, stay resilient. Two, seek help or mentorship um, if you have the opportunity. Not, some people try to take on all of these challenges alone, but it really does make a difference when you have someone kind of standing in your corner. Um, so those are two big advices I would give personally.
1: Well, I love that. And you mentioned Facebook, and eventually you'll have the public one for Instagram, LinkedIn, on LinkedIn.
0: Oh, yeah. I have a LinkedIn as well. Uh, Festus Ohan is where you, if you type that in, I'm probably the only one that you'll see. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Well, the benefit of having a name like that, like you're, you're not going to be confused for anybody else. So you have exactly. some, definitely <laughs> your own personality there, which is awesome. Well, Festus, you've been amazing. I know you're incredibly busy. You know, they're uh, in residency and everything you have going on. It's been amazing to meet you, to get to know you a little bit more on the podcast. So thank you for making time today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And um, it was truly a pleasure. So thank you all
1: for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, They're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.